0: hello everyone welcome to another episode of the leap takers podcast i hope you and your families are doing well in these crazy times first of all so despite everything going on though i'm happy to bring you a new episode today of the leap takers podcast where i'm interviewing daring european entrepreneurs investors and shapers from various fields to retrace their journey and to discover the insights tips tricks and tactics they gathered so that you too can take the leap My guest today is Gonzalo, or Gons as he calls himself. He runs and writes C-Table, one of the leading newsletters focused on European tech and the startup scene here in Europe. He puts out an analysis about a particular topic every Friday, along with the most important news and funding rounds happening in Europe right now. I absolutely love his writing and always look forward to getting his newsletter every week. So I'm very happy he decided to come on the show ctable is read by tens of thousands every week and his work has been featured in wired and sifted for example in addition to ctable gonzalo is also head of growth at jubatical an estonian relocation service for tech companies and he's mentoring startups in his free time as well gonzalo also works fully remote which means he's not bound to one place or office in today's episode, we cover a lot of topics. For example, practical tips for remote work and working from home, which is very useful in these times. How Gonzalez started Seatable, the origin story. Then we cover what makes a successful newsletter and advice on how to grow your own content. And finally, we also talk about the impact of COVID-19 on the startup scene in general. So as always, before we get started, I'd like to share one of my favorite quotes. Here it goes. Discipline equals freedom. This is a quote from Joko Willink. And having said that, let's get started with today's interview. Hi Gonzalo, welcome to the LeapTekers podcast and thanks a lot for taking the time today. I think you're based in Argentina. Maybe you can tell us a bit about that later, but maybe first of all, briefly introduce yourself and what you're working on for the people that don't know you yet.
1: Yeah, so, well, thanks so much uh, for having me, man. It's, it's a pleasure. So as I said, my name's Gons. Um, I'm originally from Argentina, based in Barcelona, but got stuck here before uh, COVID-19, so I've been just hiding away in my place back home in Argentina. I'm the founder and writer for Seat Table. Seat Table is a newsletter that analyzes uh, tech in Europe and its impact on society.
0: Okay, very cool. And I... Exactly, that's how I, you know, heard about you because I was a, a reader for a while now from Seat table and I can already tell here it's highly recommendable. But I think a good place to start is, I think you built up your, I mean, your, your newsletter and also what you're working on full-time. It's it's all remote and given the current circumstance with the COVID-19 crisis, I think remote work is becoming more and more a thing. Could you tell the audience a bit about how you you remote work and how you are working typically as, as a, you know, for table and for the companies that you're working on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working remotely for the past probably six or seven years. So for a while, this is definitely not new for me. Remote work has been slowly growing for the past uh, decade. I've always been very, very uh, bullish on this. Uh, both on our personal side and from a sort of um, impact on technology and society side. So what I do think is that uh, COVID-19 is going to strongly accelerate this the same way like this. This is a trend that's already happening. It's a trend that's been going on for a while. Uh, But COVID-19 is going to accelerate it the same way like, let's say, World uh, War II accelerated the uh, like the rise of uh, women in the workplace in the U.S. So the trend was already happening, but a single event, World War II, really pushed it forward. Same here for remote work and COVID-19. We are seeing most companies go remote, and after this. I don't think it's going to be that easy for those companies and those CEOs to tell people to just go back to the office. But I think it's—I think it's, a, it's definitely a good thing. Uh, on my end, yeah, I've been working remotely for the past six, seven years, and it really works for me. It's working remotely. It's a skill, I think, and I managed to to find a few tricks that help throughout the years.
0: Nice and you uh yeah i said you worked already remotely for a few years and it's probably not for everyone as well maybe you need a certain personality type as well or how do you view that is it really mainstream possible that everyone would work remote i don't think
1: it's going to be fully uh mainstream meaning all companies going remotely as you said i think there are certain personality types that are more suited to remote and others that are more suited to just office work but i I do think many companies and and many people just work in offices because that's what they've been doing for the past 50 or six years. There wasn't a reason to change that. And uh, and right now there is uh, a fairly decent reason to do it. So I don't think it's going to be fully mainstream and the only option, but we'll definitely see big big rise in companies uh, working remotely and of course the the entire ecosystem that supports those companies tools and everything for instance i've been writing quite a bit that one of the biggest opportunities right now that i see in european technology is building the sort of the infrastructure that supports or sustains uh, remote work for instance, hiring people remotely, finding people remotely, doing the paperwork, payroll, all that stuff, it's a pain in the ass. And whoever builds that solution and takes it to market, there's a huge opportunity there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree with you Darren. And I mean, you can see it already in the crazy <laughs> share price developments of companies like Zoom, that yeah. there is definitely demand for that. The reason I ask you this question is because now so many people are forced to work remotely for the time of this crisis. And you, I would say, as a, someone who did it for several years, you ha- might have a few tips or tricks for people that you know how to be more productive or what are your best practices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a great question. And hopefully this is helpful to a bunch of people listening right now. So the first thing for me is uh, to set up our routine. So... That routine, it starts uh, with me. I wake up, grab some coffee, breathe for an hour or two. And then what I do is I get ready for work. As if I, like, I'd like I be going to an office. Like, I get fully dressed and I start working just as usual. One key thing for me is I keep my phone in airplane mode uh, until around noon, where I get the bulk of the work done. I mean, those couple of very important things that you got to get done each day so it starts with a routine starts with making sure that sort of your mind knows that you are working not just in your pajamas watching netflix so whatever rules you can set in place to mark that separation between work and sort of the rest of your life is helpful so setting work hours for instance or working from a very specific uh, room that it's not your bedroom or just getting fully changed or don't having your phone uh, lying around all those tricks are have been super helpful to me the other thing is make sure that you really have a comfortable remote setup and this is very important because I, i've been seeing people just taking that are now working remotely taking the opportunity to work from their beds or their couch and that's definitely not a good long-term solution it might work for a few days but if you want to work from your bed for the next five years then Your back is not going to be super happy about it. And then you're going to start having trouble separating work and life because your mind won't know if you're actually sleeping, working, like what are you trying to do? Like one of the other rules I try to do, for instance, is I don't take my computer to bed. I have an Apple TV whenever I want want to watch Netflix or whatever, but I don't ever take my computer uh, or my phone to bed. And so having those that segmentation has been super helpful to me any cool trips that you found yourself working remotely
0: i personally have not really worked remotely before this crisis but i always really kind of wanted to try it out or i think i personally would really like to work in a setup where you can work fully remotely and so far i mean i'm still experimenting but i'd like to Also have a routine. I mean, get dressed normally. I don't wear your pajamas. I do the same thing. I just dress like almost like I would to work. And then I still have my fixed routine. You know, I get a tea or something in the morning. I sit in front of my computer at pretty much fixed time. And then I start working and I do a quick lunch break. And I also try to be done at a certain time. And then I'm still checking my emails from time to time, but I'm not going back on, like, say, the work laptop yeah
1: yeah uh, absolutely yeah. and this all look like silly suggestions but uh they work at least uh, they work for me and for my friends and my co-workers who are remotely uh they do work
0: uh, yeah and i mean what really appealed to me with the whole remote work thing that now is unfortunately not possible but that you can work from anywhere and you could just, you know, live in a different city every couple of months or years. And so I think, I don't know, Did I think you lived in uh, Milan before and some other cities. So were there any places that you really liked?
1: I, I definitely took advantage of that. I lived in the U.S., I lived in Milan, I lived in Paris, I lived live in Barcelona. And I also traveled around quite a bit, so uh, I definitely leverage uh, remote work. So I spent a month in Japan, uh, a couple of times travel around Europe, Singapore, Hong Kong. So, yeah, uh, that was a big part of my life up until 2020. Early 2020, I decided to sort of hit pause on the whole traveling and start taking a bit better care of, of myself. Well, I think it was pretty good timing, given that right now we can't really travel. One of my favorite, well, probably my favorite city in the world is Paris. It's not a great city to work remotely, no. It's a great city to visit, to live in, but not to work remotely. Probably my favorite city for working remotely would be, It's an interesting question, but probably Singapore. I really enjoyed my time over there. I don't really have a good explanation on why, but rather it's a small city, it's super easy to walk around or to travel with the with the metro, with the subway. There are a bunch of coffee shops. There are a bunch of co-working spaces. Like, everything works. It's a it's good place to spend some time in. So I think that's my favorite city where we're remotely from. Uh, Buenos Aires, it's, it's really cool as well. I do like the mix of European heritage and just the Argentinian slash South American craziness. Um, so Buenos Aires is safe very only. it's it's affordable, but it's also insanely fun
0: um, mm. so cool and since we are now in in uh, Argentina, um, maybe it is a good moment to go a bit back in the in time and kind of put some light on what you really what got you started because I think you worked for a few startups or you started a few startups yourself in the past and So how would you say did you become interested in technology and entrepreneurship? Was there any moment um, that kind of defined this for you or that kicked everything off? Yeah,
1: I'm not sure if there was a specific moment. So I started in high school. I I built uh, websites, uh, grew them, and then flipped them. So sold them. That was my first sort of dip with the whole internet marketing thing. So right now, um, on top of writing for seat Table, I do growth. I run the growth team for a, for a tech company here in Europe. So that, that was how I started internet marketing when I was in high school. That's when I got the first taste of technology. And, and just. Uh, and to be honest, uh, when I was 16, what mattered to me was cash. I got some petty cash from, from flipping websites, right? Then, and this is weird, I went to college to study architecture. I stud- studied that for a few years. I still really enjoy architecture, but I dropped out when I realized that what I wanted to do in life was technology and and building companies and helping companies grow. I really missed my days of just building stuff. That's when I started a DTC brand here in Argentina with a couple of friends. Back when DTC wasn't even cool, so we raised a bit of money, um, started working, and that was... I'd say a semi-success. I did a small exit. I sold my, sort of my shares to, to, to my partners at the time because they wanted to, to go do something else. And currently, we were in a disagreement. They wanted to keep the company smallish. I wanted to raise uh, money and go big. So I started that company, sold, those, uh, sold my, my shares to, to my partners, and then I started another company. That company took me to the U.S., and I think this was a turning point for me. We applied to an accelerator called the Grandry. It was one of the top ten uh, in the U.S. at the time. That was in Cincinnati. That's uh, a small, small, smallish city in in Ohio, so the the U.S. Midwest, a very, very interesting place to live. So we moved the entire team over there. Spent some time. Ultimately, the the business failed. Uh, it was the translation marketplace catch that everyone who knew two more languages could be a translator, sort of like Uber for, for translation. And that really played to my strengths because I had experience with, with growing startups and I, and I speak four languages. So that's sort of that, that the, the mission really resonated with me. The company ended up going nowhere, unfortunately, but at that point I was just hooked, went back to Argentina, started freelancing for a bunch of different companies and well, now I'm, now I'm here six years later.
0: Okay, wow. I just wanted to touch on one point you mentioned in the beginning about the website flipping. How does this really work? I'm, I'm just curious. Like, you just buy a website and kind of make it better, or, or I, I have no idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I, I haven't done this in probably 12 or 13 years at this point. But what I did is either I found a niche and that could be anything, and I either bought a website on Flippa, Grow it a bit, mostly via organic traffic, so SEO, and then sold it for more than I bought it for, or I either created the website from scratch. So it's like typical internet direct marketing tactics for that. And that's, that's where I sort of learned sort of the foundation for what I do now. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's a fairly simple process. I was going to get rich. That that wasn't the goal either. I just wanted, I know, to learn stuff and and to get some cash. I know I was a teenager.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> you don't think about that much in the future then. <laughs> but no, not at all. Okay, but it's it's interesting how you know this kind of kicked everything off. You mentioned the the startups that were like semi-successful or or the one that failed and. I believe you probably can draw a lot of important learnings from that uh, experience. So do you have any, you know, key learnings that you would say, okay, that's really something that I would, you know, do different now or that I would give someone as an advice?
1: Yeah. So the first one is pick your co-founders very carefully. Not because you don't like them or you are not fit it, but do make sure that everyone's in agreement regarding what you want to do with the company. Like, what's the plan? Do you want to start like a boutique, small bootstrapped SaaS company? Or do you want to go raise money and try to go big? Because those are fundamentally two very different paths. So that's one thing. Uh, pick who, you, who your founder is very carefully and make sure that everyone's in agreement on what you're trying to do. That's the number one thing, because at the end of the day you're gonna spend five or ten years uh, with that person. and if you're not aligned from the start, then you're set' like you're setting yourself for, uh, for failure. And the second thing, and this is, I'm not even sure if I should mention it, but the the main thing here is uh, talk to your users. that's it's cliche. like everyone says it, but it's true. At the end of the day, it's it's true. We did it a lot for the DTC run, and it was in terms of um, sort of growth, really successful, at least in Argentina, but we failed to do it for the other company. We never got anywhere. So I'd say those two things are, are, are the main ones. A third one that it's not really about companies per se, but really whatever you're trying to do is try to figure out what's your edge like what's your personal edge why you should start that company why you should do that thing or why you're different or better than the rest or what weird intersection of uh, skills and interests do you have and try to exploit that so try to find your edge and leverage uh, your edge
0: Mm -hmm. and do you have any insights on you know picking the co-founder or how you actually i mean you mentioned some things but I mean, I'm not sure if, if you have an opinion on it, but do you think there are great tools right now to you know, find someone to start a company with you or to kind of filter who could be a good co founder?
1: I'm not sure I'm the right person um, to ask that question. No, no, that's fine. Fu- no, no, that's fine. I, I do have a, a sort of an okay answer here, or at least a place to start. I'm not sure I'm, I'm the right person because I haven't found uh, my sort of my. Perfect co-founder match just yet. That said, uh, if you wanted to, if you think you want to start a company, you don't know where to start, uh, you don't have a co-founder, then I'll probably go check Entrepreneur First. So Entrepreneur First is talent investor. You apply, you get to the program. The program is sort of uh, structured in different batches in different um, locations, and they just get to their group of. I don't know, 50, 60, 100 very smart people who don't have a company, who don't have an idea, who don't have a co-founder. And they sort of stressed, they put them in different groups and stressed them as co-founding sort of teams. And at the end of the program, you got to find a, find a team, you got to find, find an idea and see if that takes you somewhere. And it might seem sort of the, the, the typical assumption is that you really need to know your co-founder because like it should be a friend, a colleague, or someone you worked very closely with. But they, or what they think is that they have this counterintuitive uh, take or that actually, if you know a co-founder very well, it's it's not good for you. It's not good for you because you don't know when to quit. Whenever you don't know someone and you have a bunch of different options and your the program is Putting you through all this like stress, then what that does is that you change like teams and co-founders all the time until you find someone that really, really, really sticks. And I'm not even sure I'm doing like EF justice with my explanation, but it's if we're looking for a co-founder, then that's definitely a right place to start.
0: It's very interesting that you mentioned EF because I actually just. Over lunch today, I was listening to a podcast with Matt Clifford, uh, the founder of Entrepreneur First, and he exactly mentioned what you just said. So it's quite yeah. interesting. And maybe that's also why I was thinking about this question in the back of my mind. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Uh-
1: I didn't come up with an answer, to be honest. I'm just trying to rehash what Matt does. He, uh, one of my favorite seat table editions is my interview with, with Matt. and We discussed this at length. Um, and I think it's a very interesting sort of contrarian take. And I think it's working. Or, or the, numbers, the numbers say that it's working
0: so far. Mm. Okay. I will definitely then link this edition of seat table to the podcast notes. And actually, since you mentioned seat Table, I, I wanted to switch gears and uh, cover that, I think, very important part that I was very interested in in this conversation to learn how you started seat Table and, you know, what you're trying to do with it and how you grew it to now. I believe it's probably one of the best newsletters for entrepreneurship in Europe. So <laughs> it's difficult where to start, but maybe let's just start at the beginning. And how did you come up with the idea? And why did you start seat Table?
1: So I was living in Paris at the time, but I had to go back to Argentina for a couple of months to take care of some personal stuff. While I was, well, here, while I was in Argentina, I I realized I really missed taxing in Europe. So I decided what's, what's the best way to stay in touch with them? Maybe just write about them? So I started writing. I launched, so I quickly coded a landing page, slapped a MailChimp form. On that, and just call it a day. At first, <coughs> at first it was my, my I had just a few friends. But then I wrote this piece on Spotify, uh, acquiring Gimlet Media, which is a podcast studio, and how that um, was gonna sort of impact European technology and the whole podcasting space. And that piece started getting some traction. And a bunch of subscribers and that got me the initial momentum I needed to really take this seriously. That was, I'm not sure if late 2017, early 2018, Uh, but after that I just haven't stopped. Uh, So that's how I started.
0: And just one question, do you know why this piece got so much traction or over which channel you gained that traction?
1: Yeah, so it's mostly word of mouth. Uh, word of mouth via Twitter and LinkedIn. I don't know why it got so much traction. My take is that it had a novel and interesting approach. So I was arguing that Spotify buying Gimlet was akin of to what Google was doing when they created AdSense. So there's like. Advertising in podcasts, it's a great opportunity, but it's really fragmented. You got to have a bunch of one-on-one conversations with all the shows, uh, which is how the internet worked before AdSense and AdWords came in, right? You didn't have like one single sort of ad dashboard. You just controlled um, or had access to millions millions and millions of searches. Uh, So in podcasting, it still works that way. And what Spotify could do uh, with that acquisition is they could create sort of this ad sense of podcasting. So just one central platform where you can advertise to all and every podcast. Like that was roughly uh, my take, which was something that no one was talking about. And I guess it generated some attention, at least in small niches. And the piece definitely didn't go viral. I'm not saying that. But it generated the momentum I needed to just keep going.
0: Mm -hmm. okay and i I think i'm just curious because i always you know wonder how this i mean there's so many websites out there and uh, kind of how do these pieces that are very you know very good content i think some of them get lost and some of them kind of make their way up and get shared and it's very hard to find the pattern or why this happens or which ones get up there. I don't know if you have a view on it, but it's probably just, it's a bit of luck, word of mouth and putting in the right channels maybe.
1: Yes, there is definitely some uh, luck involved, but you can definitely put the the work on your end to try to maximize that luck. So if you have an audience, if you write interesting stuff, if you're authentic, like those things are a great foundation. And you you can actually manufacture it a bit. For instance, like that's why people uh, build lists, for instance, 100 whatever. Uh, And I do it myself, like 100 tech companies in Barcelona, for instance. Uh, Then you can start manufacturing some some traction, because uh, people like to be featured in those lists. It's like an ego-stroking tactic and they share it because, of course, they like being on those lists, but that's not the I I I don't think that's the right way either. Like I prefer my actual writing to do the talking.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, fully agree. In the end, the quality and uh, the content needs to be great and needs to be worth reading and that you actually learn something and can take something away from it. For me also personally, this is the I mean the main reason why I would share something and why I would, we, would spend my time on, on something. Yeah. Um, still, I wonder, do you have any take on what makes a great content producer today in today's world? Like not only someone who writes a newsletter like yours, but also in a, a vlogger or a blogger or a podcaster. You mentioned authenticity, but maybe you have other, you know, characteristics that you think are important.
1: Yeah, so uh, authenticity is definitely one. So I think it's worth re-mentioning. The second one is consistency. Doing the same thing every day, every week. As a function of doing that, you'll get better, like no matter what. So consistency, authenticity. Something I also mentioned is before, and I think it's even more important with content creation, is try to find your edge or your personal monopoly, whatever that is. That weird intersection of skills where you are, Actually, for class at perhaps you are not the best marketer, and you're not the best I don't know, botanist, but when you intersect those two things, perhaps you're the best uh, marketer in botanist space, I don't know. Just, just put two random, weird things together. and the more things you intersect, um, the better it is. And the thing about the internet is there are, and there's an almost infinite number of people. On the internet so it doesn't matter how niche you are you can always reach a decent number of people who are interested in the same stuff that you are so the like the internet rewards very very niche and very very weird stuff so you just figure out what that actual personal monopolies embrace it and try to reach people who are interested in that that's the third thing and for me uh the fourth uh thing that's very interesting in this there's, there's a writer called david pearl who has this idea that uh you got to start from abundance so in my case it's never start from a blank page but rather start from notes from information from an outline from quotes from something so whenever you start from a blank page at least for me like the result is not going be, gonna to be as good as if i had started with an idea or a bunch of ideas or, or something else. So start from abundance, start from something. I'm not sure how that applies to let's say blogging, but at least uh, if you're a writer, definitely, definitely do that. Um, like most of my time is not writing, but consuming and organizing um, information.
0: Mm-hmm and actually how do you separate or how do you manage to have a, a job and then have this as a side project i'm not sure if you if it's still only side project table but kind of how do you best separate these two things and also maybe as a tip for other people that want to start something on the side cool i
1: have a lot of friends
0: no i'm just kidding
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a good question so i've managed to find a routine but as i said a big part of seat table for me is consuming and organizing uh, information and starting from abundance when I write and I consume and organize information regardless of the fact that I do seat table. Like I've been reading and taking notes and, and just building uh, sort of my second brain for for years, like even before Tiago Forte coined the, the term second brain. So. I've been doing that for years. It's part of my routine. As I said, I start my day every day with, with reading. I read for at least an hour every day. I, lead, I read a lot on the weekends. I take notes. and I like transcribe my notes from flashcards or from pages to Rome. I'm using a tool called Rome for this. So that's, that's the one key thing. There are a lot of things that I do that I've been doing for a while now. That said, I think being effective has been key for me and I don't mind hard work, to be honest. I work quite a bit. I spend, I do work on my sort of day job uh, more than a regular person would work on a day job, but I also spend quite a bit of time on seat table, but that's because I like it. I really enjoy it. So I I can't say I have a formula for this, but I think the answer is that whenever you are really interested in something, you'll find a way to do it. If you think you want to do something, but you're still on your couch watching Netflix, then you probably should ask yourself if you really want that that bad, or not. Like, and it's if you don't, it's fine. But perhaps having an honest conversation with yourself about what you want and what you don't want is what you should do. And it's it's not easy, of course. But yeah, like if you really want to do something, you find the time to do it. Uh, like actions speak louder than words. Here,
0: yeah, I like that one, and it's very true. Very true and so
1: you're doing your, you're doing your podcast right exactly you have a full-time and job and you're ex- doing your podcast. how do you how do you find the time like
0: yeah, yeah you you make the time and it's because it's it's actually it's something that interests <laughs> you it's fun and obviously yeah you you put it in your free time and then but it doesn't feel like work it's it's like something you you want to do right yeah
1: yeah i was i was having this discussion with my girlfriend the other day and i was trying to like she was worried i was working too much and i was working saturdays on sit table i'm like sit table don't work like sit table is fun like this is what i want to do like don't worry about me so yeah i don't think she got it
0: though <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know people have different priorities or they they like different things and that's perfectly fine so um, yeah and as you said you you need to find for yourself what you value and what you want to do cool and I think we didn't even really mention that much yet about seat table itself so could you just briefly describe you know kind of what you uh, write about typically and you know kind of who is reading it or who who should read seat table and if, if there are people in yeah, the audience so- that haven't heard about it
1: yeah so seat table is a weekly newsletter on european tech it analyzes something that's going on in tech that week and how it impacts companies, societies, ecosystems, investors. It goes out, as I said, once a week on Fridays at 9 a.m. Central time, Central European time. It's mostly read by European investors, founders, startup employees, and the press, I'd say. So that's mostly it. There are some non-European readers, mostly people from, let's say, the U.S. or Asia, who are interested in European tech. But if if you are interested in what's going on in Europe right now, then you should ref, definitely read Seat Table. It's not a news email. For that, you got a bunch of different options. You got tech.eu, you got EU startups, you got Sifted. So if you want to stay on top of what's going on, like just the regular news, Seat C- Table is not for you sit table like the, the my emails are usually two or three uh, thousand words long. They take a deep dive into a very specific topic that's going on that week. It could be a company raising money and how that industry is affecting technology, it could be European uh, regulation and how that affects startups, or it could be right now what I'm doing is I'm writing quite a bit about COVID. Last startup, as you mentioned, was how COVID will affect the future of hiring. Uh, and as I said, like, seat table is, is, or being a seat table reader is a bit of a hard work. So if you're looking for just uh, a couple of bite-sized, like, news bits, it's not for you. But if you want to sort of go the extra mile, then definitely, like, i love to have you as a subscriber.
0: Mm-hmm. And how many people do you f- are reading, typically, your newsletter?
1: Yeah, so we I have about it it really depends on the month and on, and and is affecting this a bit between fifty and seventy thousand uh visitors to my site every uh, month and then I have in the low five figures in terms of subscribers so it's not huge, but it's a decent number uh that now I feel compelled to write for
0: every week yeah I mean that's amazing i i think it's it's a great number for any you know business out there that does like a newsletter or that produces content. So congrats to that. I think it's very cool. And also I really enjoy reading it. So again, I can just recommend people to check it out. Before we close, I wanted to also go a bit into the whole COVID-19 and the impact on European tech, but probably don't have (laughs) too much time to go deep into it. I was wondering more also, you, I think you do every, at the end of every year or the beginning of every year, you do some predictions for what's happening the next year and you did that as well for 2020 i'm wondering do you still stand with with these predictions or <laughs> do you think it's it's all it's all changed now with COVID? <laughs> uh, well
1: that, that was a great way to lose a thousand euros so i make those <laughs> predictions but I, what i do is i put some money where my mouth is so if i don't hit those predictions i donate a thousand euros to a charity of my choice or readers uh, choice and my predictions were around eight we were Europe growing as a whole. B, seeing some consolidation in a couple of industries. I I got that one right. So I I specifically targeted uh, micro-mobility, food, and recruitment marketplaces. So I got that one right, but for very different reasons. Uh, So I'm not sure I should count that as a success. The third one was that France will emerge as a winner or it will go like And I think I got that one slightly right as well, meaning France is doing a great job in this whole COVID crisis. That said, I put very specific and quantifiable um, sort of metrics, sort of, so I could answer yes or no for each one of those predictions, because if I'm putting money on the line, I've got to be clear as to what I'm putting money against. And I'm not, definitely not hitting the, the numbers. So, I, my, my take was that France was gonna raise less four least bil- four billions this year due to COVID 19. I don't think that's happening. So, with what I knew at the time, yeah, I would have made the same predictions. It was a very good way of losing a thousand US.
0: Yeah, well, at least it goes to a good cause, and who knows, maybe there's a miracle recovery <laughs> in the second uh, half.
1: I, I, but... I, I seriously doubt that. I don't think we'll see the V-shaped recovery that most companies are expecting for a bunch of different reasons. But yeah, I, I haven't. I'm still sort of waiting. But yeah, since December, I, I like I know I'm gonna have to donate those those euros, and I'm I'm very happy to do it to be honest.
0: Mm. You also put out, I think, a list of you know different areas um, or different industries and how they are affected by COVID nineteen, and we don't need to go really deep into it. But where do you see really like the the big impact happening of of the virus, yeah. and what are you like your key industries?
1: The the first thing that we need to establish is that for me the overarching narrative is that COVID will accelerate some trends that we, we've we been seeing uh, for the past five or 10 years and will completely reverse others. And the example I gave at the beginning of the podcast is of women coming into the workforce after World War II. The, some of the industries that I think are going to be possibly impacted are first what I like to call the remote economy. That is a bunch of stuff that's currently going on uh, in the physical world right now is going to move to remote, and some of the examples I gave are, first, well, of course, remote work, that's the obvious one, but others are, um, like, interactions where you, right now, like, you do them in the physical world, but you do them just because you've been doing them that way for the past 50 years, and a great example is telemedicine, for instance, or teletherapy, so you can actually interact with a physician or with a therapist on Skype, on Zoom, or on whatever software you might have, pay for it, and they can probably treat you uh remotely. That's I think that's a great one. The other one that I think it's it's non-obvious, well, the obvious one is gaming, but the non-obvious side of that is esports. I think esports or I've been saying that esports is the biggest industry no one is talking about, because it's only being talked about in like the smallest Niche. The, the numbers behind esports the viewership numbers the engagement numbers they all, they're just insane so i think uh with rise of gaming this will be sort of the thing that tips esports up um, towards mainstream
0: okay yeah i've i see that as well i think esports has a, a great future if you can monetize it as well which might be a bit of a challenge still but i think there's great progress being done there
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. What do you think? Like what do you think are the industries that are going to be possibly yeah.
0: affected? Yeah. I also had a few conversations with some friends about that. I think we we share what you what you just said, but it's also I think we actually think that some e-commerce stores that to everything online or also like dark kitchens like that yeah, restaurants that kitchens. don't have an actual you know restaurant where you can yeah. go and eat but they only deliver so i think these delivery type of companies i'm oh, very
1: well. very bullish or i've been very bullish on dark kitchens for for a while now and i think this yeah this will only accelerate that
0: yeah and and there's definitely a few more, as well as you said, the whole remote working productivity tools. I also think some fintech solutions could actually profit. Not all of them, like it really depends on the sector. But I think just digital payment overall will will increase even more. Cash, yeah. as like you touch a physical banknote, will not be as popular anymore in the future. I believe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing uh, I forgot is. Fitness. So the fitness space. We've been seeing like hardware companies like Tonal or Peloton, Doid. We've seen apps like ProLytics. But I think the main change here is going to be that fitness can now be like a two-way thing where a teacher or an instructor sort of streams uh, a class. But on the other side, you got 10, 20, 50, 100 sort of, what's the right word for this? 100 people just streaming their own workouts workouts back sort of like a zoom call and i've been doing that i've been i've seen that being done right now with crossfit gyms all over the world where they're not only seeing the teacher like the instructor stream workout but rather people are streaming their own living rooms while they work out and everyone like gets the community aspect out of it so i think like that's gonna happen as well
0: Mm -hmm. that sounds amazing are there any companies that you know that do that
1: i don't to be honest Uh, i really don't and i've been looking uh for one so if anyone knows of one do send them uh my way Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but i I don't and whoever builds like the software for this like niche uh markets telemedicine teletherapy like two-way like all that stuff yeah there's there's a big opportunity there Mm -hmm.
0: all right well i think we we are at the end of time um Gonzalo but thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I still would like to ask the the last question I typically ask my guests which is related to the name of the podcast. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm really curious what does you know courage mean to you in, in the sense of entrepreneurship or also life.
1: Yeah that's that's a great question. So I like to read the Stoics quite a bit. So Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and, and, and when you put courage in their own sort of terms, for me, I think courage is the ability of doing something where you don't control the outcome, but being completely okay with it and doing it anyway, sort of uh, taking that leap, uh, regardless of whether you can control what's afterwards.
0: Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well then, where can people find more about you? Like you mentioned SeatTable. I believe it's SeatTable.com. Yep, SeatTable.com. Um, any, like what is your Twitter handle or where else can people find you if they yeah. want to uh, find more about you? So
1: seatable.com, do subscribe if you're interested in European tech. And on Twitter, I'm, I'm surely active. It's S, uh, And we'll just link it on the notes below because it's, it's not super easy to spell.
0: Okay, I will definitely do that and good then as always everyone can find uh, all the important things uh, linked in the show notes as well of this episode thank you very much gonzalo and i hope everything goes well with, with c table this year as well and you still <laughs> get get one or two predictions right <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll see about that for now i'll i'll just start thinking about which chart to the to. so but again thanks for your time man it's it's been it's been a pleasure to me
0: okay great all right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You could do me a really big favor if you would just tell one of your friends about the Leap Takers podcast and recommend it. Or if you want to even more, quickly head over to the iTunes or Apple podcast store and give the Leap Takers podcast a five-star rating. This would really help me to get more visible and that I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. Thank you so much. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info on leaptakers.com or you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram where you can find me under Remo Keyboards or just follow the Leaptakers podcast directly on Instagram as well. So having said that, thanks again for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye.